Well, as we continue on in our series in 1 Corinthians, we have gotten to chapter 7, and chapter 7 has a, some uh, debatable issues in it. If I were a wise man, I would just uh, kind of skip over those carefully, but as some of you know, I'm not that wise. So we're going to go ahead and hit them head on this morning as we go into 1 Corinthians. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we go into chapter 7 here, we're really only going to talk about the first uh, 16 verses, which is, of course, a mistake. It's always a mistake when we only break up the Bible kind of in smaller chunks. The letter was meant to be written as a whole, and you're supposed to read it kind of all at once, right? That's really how you're supposed to do it. That's why they always encourage preachers and teachers when you're teaching any kind of passage, you want to read the whole book. But of course, every morning, we, Sunday morning, we don't have time to read the whole thing, so we do take it in chunks. But I want to start out by actually quoting to you verse 26 to try to give us an idea, a little bit of the context of what's going to be going on here in chapter 7. It says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. So there is some present distress going on, and it's likely coloring the advice that Paul is giving here because of what's going on. And now what this present distress is, we might go into it more when we get to verse 26, but it's either eschatological distress, which basically that's a really fancy way of saying that they were really anticipating Christ coming soon, and because of that, they were really thinking he was coming back, so therefore they changed their life because of that. Or maybe, and this is where I currently lean, we'll see if I still lean that way once I get to verse 26, it could be that there was like a famine going on, and because of this famine, um, it was coloring everything. Like, So if you're having a famine and you can't really feed yourself, is this a really good time to have children? Well, you know, maybe not. You know, you don't want to have children so the kid could die, right? So you can see how this might color the advice. And so we know there is some kind of present distress going on. So that should help us as we go on to verse 1. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so he's referring to this letter going back and forth. Remember, 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians and because he refers to the previous letter. So he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he gives a quote. Now this quote is almost surely something they asked about in the previous letter. So guess what that means? They know exactly what they asked when they asked that question. And we don't have that letter they sent, so it's a little bit more difficult for us. But it says, is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this has been translated different ways at different times. So in the King James Version, it says, Now concerning things, wherefore he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And so when I went to Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary, we had lots of rules, of course, most schools do. And one of the rules was no holding hands at all. And of course, they had to have a verse beside it, and the verse they put beside it was, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But of course, if you look at basically any other translation, it's not really talking about touching. It's, it's really a sexual relationship. It's not just, you know, look, I, I bumped you, you know. And actually, the ICB, which is like the children, the International Children's Bible, I think the NIV used to translate it this way, but they updated it at some point. It said this, Now I discuss the things you wrote about to me, it is good for a man not to marry, which I think is a pretty big mistake. I don't think that's particularly right, which is why if you 
scour the NIVs, you can't find it anymore. But um, I don't think it's not forbidding marriage. It is talking about forgetting, uh, forbidding some kind of sexual activity. And so he's going to go on and talk more about this. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So, the present distress seems to give him some kind of colored negative approach to, to, to getting married. See, see what it sounds like here? It says, well, because of temptation, like, I still have to get married. It doesn't sound really happy about marriage, right? Like, you know, marriage isn't really that great, but, you know, you're all going to be tempted, so... Because of that, you can't handle it. You're just going to have to go ahead and get married. And actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, of course, is one of the big arguments. If you're Catholic, you would argue for celibacy because you'd say the benefits of not being married. And I agree, Paul is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 really kind of downplaying marriage to a degree, but I think it's because of this present distress, because of what's going on. And, and, and it's coloring his decisions. We go on to verse 3. It says, The husband should give to his wife her congenial rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so we think about sex and marriage Oftentimes, in everything in our lives, we think about things in a selfish way, right? Like, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? Why am I doing it? Why am I enjoying this? And this is the absolute opposite attitude we are supposed to have, not only in life, but is also supposed to have, be the opposite in our relationships, in our intimate relationships as well. We are not supposed to be selfish, and I'm going to go on kind of a tangent here that doesn't have anything to do with the Scripture. But another thing I would say about that, and it's kind of difficult to talk about, but I think it's kind of important. Sometimes these problems actually come about for like real physical, like there's, you know, you're, you have something going wrong that is, that's causing problems, right? Like you don't really have control. It's not that you don't like each other. It's you actually have something going on. And I would say this, it is your responsibility. If there is a medical thing you can do to make it better, you should be doing it because if you care about your spouse and, and, and what is best for them, sort of the pride of not going and taking care of this or doing something about it, I think is a mistake because if there's something that can be proved, improved, something that can be made better, and you're just kind of refusing to do it, even though it might be a negative for the person that you're with, I think this is a mistake and we should be doing the best that we can to think of that other person and sometimes that includes having things fixed that aren't working the way they're supposed to be. We go on to verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So he does give an exception. So it seems like what's probably being argued about here is, the, is, is this issue of, you know, how do we handle this sexual relationship? It says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So you have an exception where you don't do it. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if you're having a famine, which I think is what's happening, I'm not 100% sure. If you're having a famine, you might say to yourself, what's the only effective form of birth control we have in the ancient times? Abstinence. 
as the only one that always worked, the only one that they would really know would perfectly work. So if you're saying, I don't want to bring a child into this world, maybe my husband and wife, we should not come together. Or maybe you're thinking Christ is coming soon or something like that. And so it seems like they were having some kind of issue whether they're debating whether it was appropriate to be having children. Because in that time, when you had relations, you had children, that's how it worked. They, they weren't a part of it. And so they seem to be arguing you shouldn't. And he's saying, no, unless you are having some special time, you're devoting yourself to prayer, that you both agree with it, that you're both okay with it, and it's a special short amount of time, you should not do it. We go on to verse 6. Now, as a, a concession, not a command, I say with this. I wish that all were as myself. Paul is single. Whether he was single his whole life, we're not sure. If you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say he wasn't. His wife may have passed away. We won't really know, but the Bible doesn't really speak to it. But it says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. He calls his singleness a gift. He calls his singleness a gift, which is why I would say, if you're going to require people to say, listen, if you want to be special, holy, like if you want to be holier than other people, and the way you do that is by not getting married, this is a misunderstanding that being single for your life or choosing to be single your life isn't just something that you, you get tough and man up and just do because it's the right thing. It's a gift from God that not everyone has. Another thing I would say about that is sometimes we often take our gifts from God and we see them as a curse. Oh, I'm single. I've been single too long or I've been single forever and we think oh, horrible, 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 horrible. But as someone who's married, there are advantages to being single. And before you get married, sometimes you don't know them because you've never been married, so you have nothing to compare it with, but you have a unique opportunity to serve God in a way which you cannot when you're married. When that missions trip comes up, when that time to go, go to China or Africa or wherever it is to do something, when you're married, you have a family, these decisions are more difficult. It's harder to do these kind of things. You, things everything seems to get more expensive for whatever reason. Oh, you got to have a house, you got an apartment, you know, when you're single, you're living on a couch somewhere, and it's fine. And so there's these big advantages to being single, and you, we need to appreciate those while we have them. But each has his own gift from God of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that is good for them to remain single as I am. And so what I'm arguing here is the reason he's saying it's good for them to remain single is because of what's going on in their particular circumstances. He's not saying, I think everybody in the whole world from all time should just remain unmarried and that widows should never get remarried. Though if that is your gift, and maybe this is something, maybe you've become widowed and you've decided it's not, you know, it's, you don't want to become remarried or whatever, and that's going to be something you're going to use to serve God's glory, of course, that is fine too. But we go on to verse 9, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, it says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So he's saying, but even in your guys' difficult circumstances, if you're widowed, and you know you're having struggles, even though it might just be a better idea to stay single because of the current distress, if you're really having trouble with any kind of temptation, even then, you should go ahead and be married. I'm not sure any of that is particularly controversial, but don't worry. We've got some more verses here, and this is where all of the controversy begins. So, I title this next slide, 
divorce and remarriage. So there's lots of books that have been written about this. You know, the divorce myth, divorce and remarriage, four Christian views. I got some others on Kindle, so on and so forth. Lots and lots of books and debates on how divorce and divorce and remarriage should be handled. And don't worry, in the next 15 minutes, I'm going to solve all of the world's controversies on this subject. So pay close attention. So let's start out with my little sad emoji. You know, guys, I had to fit, I'd find a way to get emoji in there somehow. This is, I don't agree with the, how this is viewed, and this is why I put a sad emoji, but this is the way I would describe how sort of most people look at divorce and remarriage. So this would be like three out of the four views of divorce and remarriage, four Christian views, okay? So I'm going to try to describe this to you. And I know I'm not going to, I'm generalizing, I'm not saying this is any, any one of you's views, or I'm not pinning this on anybody in particular, I'm just kind of trying to paint the picture, all right? So, number one, divorce is a sin usually, okay? So the, the, normally you say, okay, divorce is a sin, except, usually they're seen as an exception clause, and that exception clause is uh, in case of adultery. So you should never have uh, a divorce of any kind, but if there's adultery, then it's okay. Some people go with this so far as to say, let's just say you're married and you're the wife and your husband's beating you to a pulp every night. Some would counsel you to say, you don't get divorced, you separate and stay separated and hope that, you know, you never get divorced and hope that they come around. And then, of course, sometimes what happens, the wife goes back, they get beat up a few more times, this isn't working out, right, and they go back and forth. But the, the argument is often that the divorce is a sin, usually, and the, and, and the, the, the issue of uh, fidelity is normally the exception, though some might argue more of that. The Divorce Smith book, he actually argues even that is not an exception. There is no exception clause. That never, there is no situation in which it is okay. Number two, adultery makes divorce okay. So I talked about that. Number three, no remarriage after divorce. So once you've been divorced, normally the view is you cannot be married. Remarried again if you've been divorced. That's, I would say, the general tenor. But, you know, there's a lot of caveats. So I'm going to try to um, explain this. Unless adultery, maybe, okay? <laughs> Meaning this, some people think if you've been divorced and the reason you were divorced is because of adultery, then it is okay for you to get remarried. Some say if there's adultery and you get divorced, it's not okay to get remarried, okay? So there's a couple ways to look at that, but a lot of people would say it's okay if adultery has happened. Next, unless an unsaved spouse leaves. Some would say, well, if the unsaved spouse has left you and you didn't have a choice, you become saved and then they leave you based on 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, which we'll talk about later, then it would be okay to remarry. And the final is until the spouse dies. Well, if you're, even, if you're divorced and your spouse dies, your, your former spouse or however you want to word all that, 
if you, if you think that there's no remarriage, then you basically say there technically is never a divorce, no matter what the law says in the eyes of God, you're married forever, and therefore you can never um, get divorced, and so on and so forth. And so then you have to wait until your spouse dies. Now, I am just going to try to paint the picture for you on some of the fantastically difficult conundrums this gets us in. All right, let's say you're married. Your wife is just really nagging you quite a bit. It's getting to be a real problem. And you're like, well, I could divorce her, but then I wouldn't be able to get remarried. I don't think there's the nagging exception clause. So I know. I know. If I just mix a little poison in her drink, well, okay, you're right. Technically, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. But if I kill her, I mean, God will forgive me for that eventually. I mean, obviously, he'd be really mad at me, but he would forgive me, and I would not be kept from being remarried. If I actually killed my spouse, I would not be kept from being remarried. I might have to remain remarried in jail, but I could biblically get remarried. So maybe I maybe you should just start praying that your spouse passes away. Like, dear Lord, maybe, you know, maybe I just won't fix that recall I had on that passenger side airbag, and maybe it's just gonna work out. I mean, I mean, so you know, maybe you need that. Or some other I know. I know. We're getting a divorce. My wife and I are getting divorced. Well, we're pretty young. Let's say we're 22 years old, we're getting divorced. Maybe I'm going to get married someday, but you know, both of us, we never cheated on each other, so maybe real quick, before the paperwork technically goes through, I'll go have an affair quick, and then adultery, and then I can be married. Oh, you know what? You know, I know. I know better yet. You know, in the eyes of God, when we have impure thoughts, it's the same as committing adultery. Surely one of us, at some point in there, had some impure thoughts. And so surely adultery was committed. And so if adultery was committed, then good to go. We can get remarried. Or you think about this situation. This one's really difficult. I actually knew this happened to a person. I actually don't know how it all ended up, but this happened to him. They got married. And everything was going fine. They seemed to make a fine decision on who they, they married, and everything seemed to be going as, as far as I know anyway. And the person suddenly had like a serious mental, like became, I don't know, became, but their schizophrenia suddenly like, they were like not the same person anymore. And I don't know what happened, but I'm, also I'm going to make the rest up. So let's say this new person comes about because of schizophrenia, they're trying to figure it out, whatever, 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 and the person who's schizophrenic decides they're getting a divorce, and they leave you. So, you marry someone, you seem to make a fine choice, as far as you can tell and everyone else could tell, then suddenly, with no control of anybody else, this person becomes almost like a completely different person. And they leave you. And now, boom. 
you can never get married again. So under sort of the current, I don't know about the current system is the right word, but under sort of the way that we often talk about this, as I painted this broadly, this is, this is kind of how it works. So as, as many of you know, I, I've been divorced, and so I'm talking to my friend, and he's you know, discussing with me, and I'm telling this is what's going on, this is what's going on. I'm like, what should I do, what should I do, what should I do? And he says to me, he says, well, you're right. There is basically nothing you can do, but... Um, I would just tell you, whatever you do, don't get divorced. Okay, well, you have, there's like no situation I can do anything. It's just like disaster, disaster, disaster. I won't kill you all of the details this morning. And your solution is, well, I guess just, you know, do nothing, right? And this is the difficulty. So when you read the divorce myth, and he says there's no divorce in marriage, he's like, no matter what people do, you tell them they cannot be married, you know, if they've been if they've been divorced and or if they haven't done the appropriate exception clauses. But the funny thing about the exception clauses I see is it seems like if you get enough dancing, you can about get around them any way that you want. So, why do people take this view, and why has this been super common for a really long time? Because when you read the Bible, it it really does seem like this is what it says. I mean, they're just not making this up. This did not become super complicated like this with all these kind of exceptions and difficulty just because somebody's out there being a jerk, right? They're like, oh, I know, I'm going to be mean, I, and I'm, you know, my marriage is going fine, or I'm never going to get married, so I'm going to come up with a super complicated, terrible system that's really difficult for people that are having marriage problems. Like, that's not how it came about. It came about because they were really studying the Bible, and they were doing their best, and they came up with what I would say, at first read, really sounds like what the Bible's saying. And so they are genuine, they're being honest, and they're very likely super nice people. My friend that told me that, he is a very great guy, and I have nothing bad to say about him. He said what he said only to say, I think this is what the Bible says, and this is why I'm telling you this is the advice I can give. So... The issue here is not of kindness versus unkindness, because I think this view came about because of how a lot of the scriptures read. And you'll see as we go through 1 Corinthians how this came about and how it's really easy to go that direction. So as we go on, let's talk a little bit about the background of marriage and divorce in Rome and Greece. So in order to kind of figure this issue out, we're going to have to kind of know how they were dealing with divorce and remarriage within their culture. And so therefore, based on that, Paul kind of, you know, he's answering some pro questions. So they have marriage contracts. So there's a guy, his name's David Instone Brewer. He looked at every marriage and divorce document in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic from the 4th century BC to the 4th century AD. So he read every single one he could find. And so he says, what is marriage and divorce like during this time? And so he gives us some information. So we're going to talk about what he says here, at least a little bit. Marriage contracts. First of all, a marriage contract normally consisted of date and place of the agreement. So you would get together, you'd make up a contract, you had the date and the place. You had the names and hometowns of the individuals concerned. You'd have a detailed list of the dowry and the property brought. By the bride. So, you know, the dowries when the husband and wife get married and the, the, the bride's family brings a bunch of some kind of payment 
The wealthier you are, the bigger dowry you get, which of course was important if a divorce came because you kind of had to give all that back and everything. Stipulations about returning the dowry if there was a divorce. And finally, there was always pretty much a signature of witnesses. Also in marriage contracts, they also included such things as stipulations about behavior of the woman and or the man within the marriage. So sometimes they actually said, if, you know, if you're not doing this appropriate thing, I can divorce you and I get to keep the whatever. You know, they had stipulations. They had stipulations about supporting the wife if the husband were to die first. So does the, if the husband dies, does the wife get connection to the family you know, heir? You know, how, did, how did all that work? You know, they make these things. They have stipulations about inheritance by male and female children. So you might say, okay, we're going to have kids. How do we agree on where, you know, how we're going to give out our, our money when we die? Do we give it all of the males, or are we going to equally, or you know, we kind of actually might stipulate these kind of things. And then they had divorce deeds. So a divorce deed usually consisted of this, the date and the place of agreement, the name and house and towns of the individuals concerned, sounding familiar, Acknowledgement that the dowry had been returned. So when you had an official divorce, you actually had to say the dowry was given back. As a matter of fact, you not only had to give the dowry back, you had to make sure the items that the wife owned when she came were also given back. So if she had like jewelry that she was wearing or clothing or whatever that she brought with her, even though that's not technically a dowry, it was her stuff and she got to keep it. And they actually kind of kept, they even kind of kept track of depreciation to a degree figure out, okay, well, you've been married 20 years, you know, your clothes aren't worth anything anymore, so we don't need to argue about that. It sounds awful lot like people arguing over divorces today. Okay, I'll acknowledgement that neither party had grounds for litigation against the other, okay, so no one's going to sue, okay, perfect, and they had signatures of the witnesses. And also, they might include such things as a list of the dowry and property of the wife which had been returned, and an affirmation that husband and wife were free to remarry whomever they wish. So this is like a normal divorce and remarriage when contracts were involved. And these seem pretty normal to us. We, we understand these pretty well. Like, it's different, but it's pretty normal. This is where things start getting really wild in how they did remarriage and divorce back then. There's these things, I'm going to call them undocumented, we don't, unlike, we don't like undocumented things, so we're going to call this undocumented marriages and divorce. You could just live together and you were seen as married. So we have something in the United States, or at least two, I don't know what all the current laws are, it's called common law marriage. Common law marriage to them was like, happened all the time. As a matter of fact, if you didn't have kids or you didn't have a big dowry to worry about, why would you, they, they didn't even bother to go to the courthouse and get married. They just started living together and they were married. And that was it. And everyone saw them as married. As a matter of fact, when they would, they, they would get married and they would do that, it was like not even seen as like a lesser marriage. It's like just as good. Like, it, like now common law, we might think, oh, you're common law married. That's kind of like a different thing. To them, that was like, it's no difference. Let me read you this. It says, Cicero recounted a case of a Roman citizen who left his pregnant wife in Spain and set up house with another woman in Rome without having told his intentions to his first wife. 
So he leaves his wife in Spain, doesn't bother to even tell her. I mean, it would just hurt her feelings anyway, right? So, you know, his sudden death and the birth of a son to both women posed the question as to which one son was illegitimate. So he's like, okay, so we had this wife he was married to. He leaves her, he lives with other. He has both, he has sons to both. Which one is a legitimate son? Which one's like the real wife? He considered that though it was not legally necessary to give a notice of divorce, he probably should have. So what was the ruling? Yeah, you probably should have divorced the other one and like made a contract and all that. But, you know, if you leave, that's as good as divorce. You live, move in with a new person, that's as good as marriage. So this guy divorced his previous wife and married the new one, and he never had to tell either one of them what had happened. This is, this is quite, a, quite a system here. So these are these undocumented marriages and divorces. Either party could do it. So time we think that like, okay, well, the men had all the control. I mean, the women, the women could just leave. You could just, you hit the road. You go, you take off and you're not married anymore. And as I said, undocumented marriage were considered equally valid. So under this sort of understanding that there were these other kinds of marriages that were just, we move in together and we're married and we leave together and we're not. With that in mind, we're going to look at these next few verses. It says in verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. It probably says not I but the Lord because Jesus talked about this in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, Matthew 19, 1 through 12. And so I don't have time to go into all this, but I'd probably argue that when Jesus was talking about divorce with the Pharisees, he was talking about these undocumented divorces specifically. And that's why Paul says Jesus already talked about these. So, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. So it uses this word separate. And this word means divorce. It's, it's like a synonym. It's, it's not, it doesn't, they didn't, Okay, and this is really important. We separate today, right? We're still married, but we separate. In Rome, in Greek culture, if you separated, what did that mean? You're divorced. So there was no, there's no separation like we think of it today. All right. So it means divorce. I think it talks about, it's talking about undocumented divorce. And the word used here, separate, is the word one would use For the non-house owner. So the person who didn't own the house, they would separate from the person that owned the house. Okay? Then we go on to verse 11. But if she does, and that, that of course, is usually the woman. The man usually owned the house. So if if you say the woman shouldn't separate, that's because that would normally work. It's not impossible that the woman owned the house, but, I mean, that would be normally how it went. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So this is where things start getting really tricky. So if you think about the previous, you know, my sad emoji slide, and it said, but 
Well, you cannot ever be remarried or, or only very specific circumstances you can be married. It's because of other things, but this verse is a big part of it. So if she separates, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So a lot of counselors will say, if you have been divorced, you should not get remarried and you should try to reconcile with your husband, your husband or wife. And then you can, what happens if my husband and wife get married? Well, some might say that frees you, but other might say, well, you hope that one day maybe they will, if they ever get divorced, you'll be available to reconnect with them as well. So you should never, ever get remarried. And it sure seems like it's talking about that, right? I mean, if we're talking about normal marriage and divorce, it says if you're divorced, you should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. It's an or. It's you either remain unmarried the rest of your life or you reconcile your husband. These are your choices. So this, if you take this as the rock solid, you have to stay unmarried. This is what we base everything on. And then you kind of interpret everything in light of that. Then when it gives any kind of exception clause, that's why those who don't believe in the exception clause say, listen, the exception clause sounds like it, but it's not really even true. So they would even ignore the exception clause, okay? But think about it like this. If we're talking not about just any divorce, official divorce, but if we're talking about an undocumented divorce, he's saying is, listen, women do not leave your husbands in this sort of undocumented, not official way. And if you have, you need to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. So what he is saying here, possibly, is that not that there's no way, if you ever get divorced, you could ever marry. He's saying, if you have done undocumented divorce, you should still stay unmarried, and you should try to get back to your husband. Because when we get to verse 15, we have a situation where one spouse refuses to get back together or refuses to stay married, and he says what you should do about that. And then we say, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And this word for divorce is the one, is the word you would use for someone who's like, I own the house and I'm sending that person away. All right, so there's two different words. And I think it's because one is the, 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 the party that sends them away and the ones that would, one is, is the one that would separate. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. Meaning Jesus didn't talk about this one. Okay? Jesus didn't talk about this one, which is why I would argue that what he's talking about there in those previous verses are these specifically undocumented divorces, which they would know he was talking about those, because when they wrote him a letter, what did they ask him about? Hey, what about these whole undocumented divorce thing that's going on? So then he answers the question about the undocumented divorce. So he, now, now he says, now these things Jesus never talked about, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So if you saved, you have an unbelieving spouse, should you divorce them? No. You should stay together. And to the rest, I say, translation, is fine, but it sort of gives the impression that previously we were talking about only marriages between two believers, and now we're talking about marriages between believer and unbeliever. You could translate it, but concerning other matters, I say, or like we're just going on to the next thing. 
So it doesn't have to be a dichotomy. It doesn't have to be, we were talking about only two people, two people that are Christians that are getting divorced, and now we're talking about a Christian and non-Christian. It could just be, we're talking about this subject, and now we're talking about this next subject, the rest of what I have to say on this issue. That if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to stay together if they consent. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. This is really interesting uh, when you think about it from the women's perspective because there's a whole article written about it, and I better not talk about it too long, uh, but her name was Carolyn Hodge, and she wrote a big article saying, a wife's role in the home, taking care of everything in the house, almost it was almost intrinsically entwined with worship. It was your job to tend this and light this and cook this and all relating to the religious things. So if you were going to be a Christian and quit doing that kind of thing, it would not just be so easy as it is in America, right? It's like, in America, we, can, we seem to be able to separate the two a little bit easier, but then it would be even more difficult because your life was so intertwined with religious worship and you know, every meal and everything was so together. For a, a, a husband to be like, no, I'll stay with you and you don't have to do any of this stuff, it would be a very big deal. It would be a very big deal. Likely the man who would divorce his wife is probably what would happen. But if he was willing to have this major massive change, you should stay together. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is like a whole other big, long bunny trail in which I could talk a really long time about the issue of uh, believing parents making their children holy. And if, you're, and if you search for journal articles on this, you're going to find a lot of Catholics that write about this because they like this passage. So I'm not going to talk about much. I'll just say this. I would probably, at this point, without looking at it super closely, probably argue what making your children holy and your husband holy is based on. It's not holy in the sense that making them you're saved. It's that you're having a positive um, uh, Christian influence upon them. Then we go on to verse 15. It says, but if the unbelieving partner separates. Okay, so then you have this situation where the one person decides, oh, we're, I'm done. I, you became a Christian or whatever. I'm leaving you. Let it be so. In such cases... The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Different people have tried to argue what not being enslaved means. I wrote it all down, but I'm not going to go into it. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to cut straight to the answer. It, it just seems hard for me to believe not enslaved means anything other. Hey, if they leave you, you can get remarried. So, if that's what it means, then we like either have two exception clauses or something, right? And it gets even more complicated. But if what he's talking about is separate issues, at one point he's talking about undocumented divorces, and this he's just talking about the issue of what to do when you have an unbelieving and believing partner, everything becomes so much simpler, so much easier to understand in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, in Jewish divorce law, this would not normally be a reason you could divorce somebody or be allowed to divorce them because of this. In Jewish rule, and it happens today, they have these women who are called chain women. The husband and wife basically kind of divorce, but the husband's the one that writes out the divorce contract. So you know what the husband will do? 
I'm just not going to write out that divorce contract. So the woman becomes a chained woman. She can't be with her husband. They're functionally divorced, but she can't. Until he gives her a divorce, she can't marry anyone else. And so she's called a chained woman. So what he's saying here is, like, yes, normally, I'm always saying, you want to write out a marriage contract. You don't want an undocumented divorce. But if the unbelieving person just leaves you and won't go through the documented divorce proceedings like I'm telling you you should do, you should have a documented divorce. You should do this official thing. You shouldn't just leave and come together and leave and come together and leave and come together. If they refuse to do it, what is, what's the solution? You are not enslaved. Because so often in relationships, and I've talked about this before, you cannot control the other person. You cannot make them do the right thing. So if you have a situation and when one person just says, I'm leaving, I'm divorcing you, and all I have to do to do it is move out or kick you out, and then you're this person like, they left, but I was told that we're not supposed to do these undocumented divorces, but you know what am I supposed to do? Well, in this particular situation, you're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. It is better to have peace and harmony and move on. And, you know, if you're free to remarry, then try to sue them or take them to court or fight them or whatever, you know, recourse they might have. God has called us to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. So as we go on to our final slide here, divorce and remarriage. Undocumented divorce is always a sin, is what I'm suggesting. It's always, like, you're not supposed to do it. I guess the only exception to that would be if the other person doesn't, you can't stop them, you're free, but you're not supposed to do that ever, no matter what. Believers should never break marriage vows and always work to forgive and make a marriage work. I can get some cool background music hit space bar on the that one there here you go and uh and so you're always supposed to try to make it so is divorce a sin of course things went wrong things went wrong if you get a divorce and that's bad I'm not saying it's okay i'm not saying it's good but if you get a situation especially if it's two believers or divorce ends up in divorce yeah lots of bad things happen and it's sin Remarriage after a, leg- a legitimate divorce is always allowed. So therefore, if you are officially, legally divorced, you are allowed to get married. The prohib- prohibition to get remarried in verse uh, 11 was not a prohibition to get married in a legitimate official divorce. It was a prohibition to get remarried when you had performed one of these undocumented divorces and you were supposed to try to reconcile if you could or get an official divorce if they would allow. This is what I'm arguing. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not, but uh, this is what I think it is. And this is what I would finally say about this. I think God forgives. I think God forgives. So for me personally, this is quite interesting. So I get married, I get divorced, and my, my, my usually my sister and my brother-in-law would joke about it. There was a time at, at Faith where they were selling bricks on the building. 
were selling bricks, and um, you could write anything you wanted on the bricks. You know, they're just raising money. And so because I was divorced, I cannot teach there. I cannot speak in chapel. I cannot be a secretary there. I cannot coach the basketball team there. I could, I, I could be a mass murderer, theoretically, and do it, but I, I couldn't be divorced. Anything but that. Anything but that. Any other sin. I could live a life of just incredible terribleness. Just apologize and, and be okay. And so, so we always joked that we were going to buy a brick and put something on it like divorce. The true, only unforgivable sin. we weren't going to do that. But it seemed like that. So I was like, I liked faith. I, I enjoyed it there. I still like it. I mean, I, they let me play in the alumni basketball game, so that's good. I go back and play. I, I, I like all my friends there. I like people. They're great people. But to me, this issue of divorce or marriage, you create sort of this double standard in everything. In everything else is handled differently except divorce. Divorce is the only thing that you could never come back from. Almost anything else, if you did it when you were young and you were dumb and you were 16, everyone would understand that when you're 50, you're probably not that same person. Except this. Except this. It's the only sin that has sort of no way you can ever prove you've gotten beyond it. And of course, I'm not suggesting someone that got divorced yesterday be put in leader. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there is a way to demonstrate you've changed, that God has moved in your life, that you're a different person. In the same way when we have the alcoholic, the drug addict, the whatever, the former gangster come up and we say, that's great, they're preaching here and they're changing. Look, God has changed their life. But the person says, yeah, even, even if it was your fault, yeah, I was dumb. I, I did stupid things. I, I'm the reason we got divorced and it was totally my fault. Shouldn't you be able to say, and look, God's changed my life. And look, I'm not that same person. I regret what I did. I'm so glad I'm on the right path once again. I think that God forgives and that we've created this unforgivable sin of divorce. And we did it with good intentions. We were trying very hard. We were trying very hard to interpret the Bible. And I can see how it really reads that way. And I would even admit that I, I, my way might not be right. And maybe some other way is. But I've always really struggled with why there was just this one thing that was treated differently than everything else. Why it became the only true unforgivable sin. But as we go, we think about, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I'd just like you to think about how God does forgive. Of course, the greatest act of forgiveness that he gave us was sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. So let's pray as the men come forward. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We just thank you for all that you've done for us, and we just pray that as we think about this issue, it's difficulty, it's complicated, I talked a lot about it for a long time, I just pray that we would realize you forgive, and, and we, know, we know we make mistakes, we know we're at fault so often, but we just pray, Lord, we just pray that we'd be forgiving as you are, and we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ, in this messed up world, in this world that we mess up on a daily basis, provide forgiveness for our sins. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.